Um, the first letter, Aleph, is the first letter of the first line. The second letter, Bait, is the first letter of the second line. Now, you might consider this psalm perhaps an abbreviated ABCs of worship, uh, although it doesn't go through the entire alphabet. But right worship consists of, of loving God for who he really is and knowing his works, then ascribing him praise on that basis. That's the foundational starting point for worship. Without that motivation at the heart, you could hold the most traditional and conservative Sunday morning service and not actually worship any more than these mega churches that focus mainly on putting on a good concert. Yahweh must be the center of our devotion. And if you don't know God, you, you can't properly see his works because you don't recognize his nature. So this, this brief psalm not only explains key aspects of, of Yahweh's holy nature, it shows how his wonderful works toward his people are consistent with his nature. And so that's what we'll endeavor to do this morning as we consider this psalm. Uh, we will meditate on the nature of our God. We'll consider his wonderful works and we will ascribe him praise for all of them. So let's, let's read together. Psalm 111. Praise the Lord. I will give thanks to the Lord with my whole heart in the company of the upright in the congregation. Great are the works of the Lord, studied by all who delight in them. Full of splendor and majesty is his work, and his righteousness endures forever. He has caused his wondrous works to be remembered. The Lord is gracious and merciful. He provides food for those who fear him. He remembers his covenant forever. He has shown his people the power of his works in giving them the inheritance of the nations. The works of his hands are faithful and just. All his precepts are trustworthy. They are established forever and ever to be performed with faithfulness and uprightness. He sent redemption to his people. He has commanded his covenant forever. Holy and awesome is his name. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. All those who practice it have a good understanding. His praise endures forever. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are grateful, thankful that you've called us here this morning. We pray that as we consider your word that, that we would see Christ, that we would see our Savior, that we would see the beauty of your gospel um, as we consider your wondrous works and your wondrous nature. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Yahweh our God has been incredibly gracious to us. His mercies toward us are, are so diverse and numerous that we would tire out before we could get an accurate count of just how merciful he has been. That's partly why psalms like this are so helpful, because from just a few examples of God's mercy toward us, we can extrapolate so much soul-satisfying richness to praise him for. The psalmist calls us to worship in verse 1, and then leads us in an examination of these qualities of Yahweh's work in a general sense in verses 2 through 4. Then he dials into four specific works in verses 5 through 9. And then in the final verse, a benediction of sorts, he sends us off with the encouragement to fear our maker, 
with glad hearts. Ascribing praise to the everlasting God is never something to be done mechanically or or by rote. It's good to make a, a habit of praise, absolutely, but if praise is merely a habit, then it's no longer praise. The heart must be in it. It shouldn't be mere speech or or thought that never reaches the affections. God rebuked Israel many times for their empty worship, uh, in times when they had forsaken his covenant, and then they ran after false gods. Isaiah 29, verses 13 and 14 says, And the Lord said, Because this people draw near with their mouth and honor me with their lips, while their hearts are far from me. And their fear of me is a commandment taught by men. Therefore, behold, I will again do wonderful things with this people, with wonder upon wonder, and the wisdom of their wise men shall perish, and the discernment of their discerning men shall be hidden. May that never be said of us. Instead, we should give thanks to Yahweh with our whole heart, not a divided heart or merely with our minds and tongues with no heart at all. We should delight in the mighty works of Yahweh and praise him from the bottom of our hearts, as we like to say, meaning with with actual sincerity, from the depth of our religious affections, to borrow a phrase from Jonathan Edwards. It's not a mistake that Psalm 86, verses 11 through 13, reads this way, Teach me your way, O Lord, that I may walk in your truth. Unite my heart to fear your name. I give thanks to you, O Lord my God, with my whole heart, and I will glorify your name forever. For great is your steadfast love toward me. You have delivered my soul from the depths of Sheol. The steadfast love of the Lord has changed his heart. He's a new creation And he wants that heart to be unified for the sake of Yahweh's worship, the fear of the Lord in perpetuity, not just for a little while, for his entire life. Returning to Psalm 111, the psalmist in a way describes the two spheres of the believer's life of worship. Giving thanks to the Lord with my whole heart. Uh, you could see this in the private matter of the heart when no one else is looking. The, the private worship that every Christian should engage in. But it especially treasures the other sphere. Corporate worship. Right? What we have gathered for today. He wants to, to praise and thank the Lord with a whole heart in the company of the upright. In the congregation. Private worship is incredibly important in the life of the Christian, but gathering with the church on the Lord's Day is vital. It's essential, right? It is is at the essence of the redeemed life. One of the richest blessings that we have is gathering with the local church. My own heart is always filled and encouraged while gathering with the saints on the Lord's Day. What a joyous privilege it is to fellowship together, um, to sing together, to listen to the word read and preached together, and to eat at the Lord's table together, to drink deep from the ordinary means of grace together as a body of believers. What a nourishing meal that is. No wonder why 
So many of us uh, need a, a strong nap on a Sunday afternoon. We have feasted deeply together every time we gather to worship. We gather to praise and glorify our God to receive nourishment for our souls. And our Heavenly Father is so gracious as to, as to spoon-feed us all that we need for life and godliness, growth in maturity, conforming us more and more to the image of Christ our Savior. That's one of his wonderful works. Uh, verses 2 through 4 do a masterful job showing us the qualities of Yahweh's work generally by meditating on his perfections, um, the attributes of God. His works are great indeed. As, as verse 2 says, they are worthy of studying. The pages of Scripture are, are absolutely loaded with stories of the wonderful works of God on behalf of his people and for the glory of his name. The crossing of the Red Sea, the falling walls of Jericho, the work of the Holy Spirit at, at Pentecost, where 3,000 souls were added to the church in a single day. And that's only three examples of, of the extravagant, large-scale, miraculous work of our God. We could also consider the providence of God in individual people's lives in Scripture. Uh, the widow's jars of oil and flour remaining full. Naaman being healed of his leprosy. Uh, and if I'm, I may add, uh, he was healed by some very ordinary means of washing in water. Um, in fact, they were so ordinary, they actually offended him at the start. That's how God works. We love to study these works because in every case, we look and we can see the marks of the same God we know and who knows us, the one who saved us, not just in body, but saved our souls. We delight in studying these testimonies because we delight in our God. We have tasted and seen that he is good, and we ourselves can testify to his good works on our behalf. Like Mary, after hearing the angels and the testimony of the shepherds, we treasure the words of Scripture and ponder them in our own hearts. We study them. We trace the providence of God throughout our lives. We take note of what he's done throughout human history. And our studies lead us to praise his splendor and majesty, as verse 3 says. His works are full of splendor and majesty because he is full of splendor and majesty. God's great actions are consistent with and are demonstrations of his eternal and unchanging holy character. He is splendor itself, thus his works are splendorous. He's the fountain of splendor. Splendor goes forth from him and dazzles his children, those with renewed eyes to see and to savor his splendor and his majesty. He, he is majesty itself, thus his works are majestic in keeping with his nature. This harkens back to David's own thanksgiving when the Ark of the Covenant was placed in its proper tent. Um, in 1 Chronicles 16, verses 23 through 27, we read, Sing to the Lord all the earth. Tell of his salvation from day to day. Declare his glory among the nations, his marvelous works among the peoples. For great is the Lord, and greatly to be praised, and he is to be feared above all gods. 
For all the gods of the peoples are worthless idols. But the Lord made the heavens. Splendor and majesty are before him. Strength and joy are in his place. Yes and amen to that. This matchless God's this God puts to shame all of the wanton idolatry in David's time, in our times, and in all other times to come. We have that as a promise because his righteousness endures forever. God will never change. We are mutable. We are influenced by others, by our own sinful drives, by our own body's health. Uh, Many things uh, change us. But Yahweh is righteous. He will never change. He cannot change. It, It would violate his nature to do so. He is the standard by which we judge right and wrong, and he will judge the nations on the last day. To quote Psalm 96, he will come to judge the earth. He will judge with righteousness and the peoples in his faithfulness. His everlasting standard of righteousness endures. And the record of his deeds as well is a fitting testament to his righteousness. He's caused his wondrous works to be remembered. No one is going to forget that Yahweh is God. His word and works stand forever. He will never go without a witness. And that witness goes forth through his church. The gates of hell will never prevail against Yahweh's church, which Paul calls the pillar and buttress of the truth. How could we, who've delighted in him, tasted his richness, uh, his kindness toward us, how could we ever forget what he has done and what he said? Yet we can show many examples today of those who suppress the truth in unrighteousness, both within and outside the visible church. There are people who would dare to speak for God, saying contradictory things that violate the teachings of Scripture. It's all the more important for for those of us who know the truth to speak it boldly to the world and to do so in love, to to spread the fragrance of of the knowledge of him everywhere, to quote 2 Corinthians 2.14. Part of this remembrance is that in his grace and mercy, uh, which are extolled uh, in, this, in this psalm, he has not done any of his works in secret. He, he operates in the open. The, the everlasting God isn't sneaking around. He hasn't uh, delivered golden tablets to a single man who never showed them to anyone and then gave him magic rocks to read from while looking in a hat. Uh, if you don't recognize that, that's the, uh, the story of Joseph Smith, the, the founder of Mormonism. No, instead, God gave tablets to Moses, written by God's own hand, which were placed in the Ark of the Covenant. He told Jeremiah to write the word in a book. He told Habakkuk to write his prophecy and to write it out so big that even runners in the street could read them. He told John to write down the book of Revelation, and then he blessed the churches who read it. Right? God has never shut up his word behind closed doors. And when the Roman church tried to keep the people from the book, God sent a reformation. God 
our Savior, loves the remembrance of his people. He wants people to know the testament of his grace and mercy as shown in the pages of Scripture. So let's now consider some of the particular actions of grace and mercy that God has shown. The psalmist will will consider God's provision of food, land, precepts, and redemption. Yahweh has provided for our material needs as well as our spiritual needs according to his amazing covenantal love. Look at verse 4. It's made up of two independent statements, but they are joined by a semicolon, which means they relate to each other and are part of the same utterance. I'm sorry, verse, verse 5. He provides food for those who fear him. He remembers his covenant forever. He provided food for his people so many times throughout the Old Testament, sometimes extraordinarily so. Um, think of the manna in the wilderness or, uh, or Elijah's uh, angelic takeout meals <laughs> that prepared him for his journey. Uh, but also, think of the Lord's Prayer. When we get to the part where we say, give us this day our daily bread, do we feel like we're rolling dice or we're pulling the lever on a slot machine? No. We have faith that God will take care of us. Why? Because he has covenanted never to leave us nor forsake us. He has promised to provide for our needs. The same Christ who multiplied the loaves and fish for 5,000 can just as easily provide daily food for his billions across the world. Yahweh delights to give good gifts to his children. John Calvin, in his commentary, links this verse with Proverbs 30, verse 8. Uh, I'm actually going to read the whole stanza from Proverbs 30. Two things I ask of you, deny them not to me before I die. Remove far from me falsehood and lying. Give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with the food that is needful for me, lest I be full and deny you and say, who is the Lord? Or lest I be poor and steal and profane the name of my God. The people of Israel were kept fed and safe despite their grumblings and their waywardness by Yahweh's covenant with them. As I said before, he's still the same covenant keeping God today, now carrying out the unbreakable new covenant. Similarly, by a mighty hand and an outstretched arm, he delivered Israel into a land that was not their own, and he made it theirs. By the power of his works, he gave them an inheritance of the nations. He cleared out the peoples before them and ushered them into the land of promise. But of course, there's, there's so much more here than just that. Under the new covenant, all the nations are Christ's inheritance. Yahweh began by giving a plot of land to one people group, but he's gone so much further. His covenant people are from all the tribes, tongues, peoples, and nations of the earth. Jesus says in his grounding statement of the Great Commission that all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of the nations. Right? That's, that's why we sing the hymn, This is My Father's World. Because it is his world. 
It's all completely under the authority of our Savior. He owns the cattle on a thousand hills. We can agree with the words of Psalm 16. Because this is my Father's world, the lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. Not only has Yahweh been faithful to provide the temporal needs of his people, but he's provided every spiritual need as well. He's delivered his precepts, his inspired written word, as we see in verse 7. Did you know all his precepts are trustworthy? (laughs) It's really true. (laughs) They're sweeter than honey, sweeter than the drippings of the honeycomb. His rules are true. Isn't that wonderful? We're surrounded by so many lies today that it's exhausting. But our God will not and cannot lie to us. Despite what the cultists say, despite what the liberal theologians who cherry-pick verses and concepts say, despite even what our own sinful natures say, Yahweh has told us the truth in his word. He doesn't hide. He doesn't sugarcoat. He doesn't contextualize based on the current culture's moral, or should I say immoral, mores. No, he has spoken, and his word stands. The grass withers and the flower fades, but Yahweh's word stands forever and ever. He performs his word with truth and uprightness because he's neither false nor disreputable. As Calvin says, all his statutes are true. They are established forever and are drawn up in perfect accordance with the strict law of truth and equity. I'm so grateful that God does it this way, that he makes a covenant and he never breaks it. Can you do that? Can we perform the precepts of God in faithfulness and uprightness? That's an incredibly tall order. It's one that's impossible for us. But it's not only easy, it's natural for God. We aren't like him. His thoughts are higher than our thoughts. His ways are higher than our ways. And strict obedience is what the law of the Most High requires. Who can rise to this occasion? Can we muster up enough faithfulness to obey the law to the smallest letter? Can you be utterly upright enough to know and to fully satisfy every obligation of Yahweh's moral law. I hope you said no to these questions because even though I've only just met most of you all today, I know that you can't do all that on your own. Neither can I. Left to our own devices, we wouldn't even want to do that. We were born sworn enemies of Yahweh. One of my favorite phrases to describe our sin We are cosmic traitors against the God who gave us life and breath and everything. Every man and woman on the face of the earth has been born in trespasses and sins, dead. What a wretched condition to stand condemned before the Holy One as an insolent lawbreaker. What are we to do? Well, I'm so glad you asked. (laughs) Because the psalmist left the grandest work of God to the last. 
He has sent redemption to his people. The psalmist had in mind many episodes of deliverance from Israel's history, from military victories, uh, the Passover, uh, perhaps the recovery of the law by Ezra. And these are, are rightly held up as very mighty works of God, preserving and helping his people. But we now, we have the benefit of the full counsel of God. And we know that the greatest act of redemption that Yahweh has ever done is sending Christ. In further keeping with his covenant, the Father has sent his eternal Son to take on flesh, to die for the sins of his people, to be a people for his own possession and bought with his blood. The original audience of this psalm was only able to partake in in the types and shadows that foretold Christ's coming. But we have the benefit to live on this side of the cross. We get to look back and delight in the fact that the fullness has come. We have yet another reference to his covenant in in this verse. Our covenant-keeping God has purposed from eternity to send this final and eternal redemption to his elect. It is the outcome of the covenant of redemption where the Son covenanted with the Father from eternity to come to earth and purchase his church with one final atoning sacrifice. He has enacted the new covenant, the one promised in Jeremiah 31. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts. I will be their God, and they shall be my people. No longer shall each one teach his brother and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. How marvelous is the redeeming work of Christ on our behalf in the death, in the life, death, burial, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus Christ. We see the depth of Yahweh's splendor and majesty and righteousness and graciousness and mercy displayed in full color crimson red by means of his blood he secured an eternal redemption for us bearing shame and scoffing rude in my place condemned he stood sealed my pardon with his blood hallelujah what a savior guilty vile and helpless we spotless lamb of god was he Full atonement. Can it be? Hallelujah. What a Savior. By commandment of his eternal covenant, unbreakable, he has sworn by his own name to accomplish it, and it is finished. To Tetelestai. The word Jesus spoke from the cross. The eternal word of God delivered just before breathing his last for us. Now, of course, it wasn't his last, Because he rose, never to die again. To quote another wonderful hymn, Crown him the Lord of life, who triumphed over the grave, and rose victorious in the strife for those he came to save. His glories now we sing, who died and rose on high, 
who died eternal life to bring and lives that death may die. The Lord of life, having defeated the grave, purchased redemption for every single one of his people. And he ascended to the right hand of his Father, where he reigns bodily at this very moment. We are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. And because of Yahweh, you are in Christ Jesus if you have put your faith in him, who has become to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption. Ephesians 1, verses 3 through 7. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Christ Jesus, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. And now this famous verse that is on the sign out front. In him we have redemption of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace. Hallelujah, what a Savior indeed. Holy and awesome is his name. I mean, this concept of redemption is so important that it has become the identity of both this church and, and my home church, Redemption Bible Church, Redeemer Covenant Church. How could we not praise him for all these mighty deeds and more? How could we not fear him who is so majestic as to do all these things? After all, the fear mentioned in verse 10 isn't merely being afraid. It's a, a healthy sanctified reverence, an acknowledgement that Yahweh is sovereign and mighty, and yet gracious and merciful, and we must marvel at him. This is the beginning of wisdom. Think of all the works and perfections of Yahweh that we've encountered so far in just nine verses of this psalm. These are things that we should wholeheartedly praise our God for, and they're all things that make us stand back and say, wow, or to be more eloquent than that, holy and awesome is his name. To a degree, words can't even begin to describe the greatness and the splendor and the righteousness of our God. And yet here we are, we must speak. We can't help it. These things are, are too glorious for us. So let us speak unless the rocks are to cry out instead. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Verse 10, in a way, gives us a little bit of, of wisdom literature parallelism here. We study the works of God, and they cause us to worship, but they also make us wise. When we put into practice the teachings of Yahweh, when we routinely ponder his great works, he makes his people wise. Remember the, the passages from Psalm 86 and Isaiah 29 that I quoted earlier, they both referenced the fear of the Lord. David, in his psalm, sought to fear Yahweh with his whole heart, um, asking God to unite his heart, to fear his name. Well, Israel wanted the opposite. They, they merely pantomimed the fear of the Lord. 
they, they acted it out as if it was just a, a commandment made by men, just a, a rule or, or a tradition that someone had given them. The difference between these two scenarios is as vast as is the redemption bought by the blood of Christ for us, as large as that is. Those who have been washed by the blood of Jesus have this very fear and thus the wisdom that accompanies it. As Matthew Henry commented on this passage, a good understanding have they, uh, are they to all that do them. Speaking of the, the words of Scripture, the fear of the Lord and the laws that give men a good understanding and are able to make them wise unto salvation. If any man will do his will, he shall know more and more clearly of the doctrine of Christ. This psalm begins with a command to praise the Lord, and it ends with a a declaration that his praise endures forever. God supplies what he commands, after all. His praise will endure forever, and he calls his people to praise him. And so we do. Knowing sound doctrine should point us to the enduring praise of God. Um, I've heard somewhere someone say orthodoxy should lead to doxology, to white-hot worship. The fear of the Lord, stoked by studying and loving the perfections of Yahweh and his wondrous works, that not only makes us wise, it makes us worshipers. So we give thanks to our covenant-keeping God with our whole hearts for his splendorous and majestic works. We give him thanks for providing for our needs, giving us his word, and for sending Christ to secure our redemption. His praise endures forever. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you have shown us glorious things out of the word today. I pray that uh, after our time of consideration uh, of these inspired words, uh, that you would stoke our hearts, um, cause us to burn brightly for for the praise of your name. Um, Help us to study deeply, uh, and that the word, uh, the doctrine, uh, what we learn and take away from from our meditations, not merely remain in our heads, um, but go to our hearts. Um, that which uh, we build our lives upon. Pray that you would fuel us, fill us, magnify your name through us. In Jesus Christ, in his glorious name I pray, amen.